Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name is Chad. I'm senior pastor here. It's a blessing to have you with us. With that said, if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to just read verses 1 through 5 again. And I promise you, complete this section and move to days 2 and 3 next Sunday. But as we continue, I think this is our fifth sermon in Genesis 1. So as we continue, let's read the word of the Lord together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand by the Spirit what it is you are saying to your church. Help us to understand this word that Moses wrote that was superintended by your Spirit for our benefit. We know that you are God, our Creator and Provider and Redeemer. Help us to understand what it is you're saying here and what it is we are to learn from it, that we might draw near to you and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, whenever we come to the creation week, we begin to hear certain inevitable questions, almost always. Here are the two main ones I hear. So in the creation week, how long was a day? Was each day a normal, ordinary 24-hour day? Or does each day represent an age? Or is the whole passage some kind of a framework or something more poetic? Second question I hear is, How many years were there between the first day and today? How many years were there between the first day and today? How many years were there between Genesis 1-1 through 2 and Genesis 1-3? Is there some kind of gap there? Or is the earth billions of years old? Is there some kind of day age by which the earth is old? How old is it? Or maybe is the earth thousands of years old? How young is it? This is what begins to happen. If there are six ordinary days of creation... From the first day to the creation of the first man, Adam, then we start with him, add up the ages listed in the genealogies, account for some potential gaps in the genealogies, then add up the number of years since the years we were given in Scripture, and then we get to some sort of age of the universe. So is the universe something like 6,000 to 12,000 years old? I don't know if you know this. For centuries, most Christian thinkers posited something of a young earth. This did. It seems a young earth is a position held throughout history by men like Basel, 4th century, Aquinas in the 13th century, and nearly all the Protestant reformers in the 16th and 17th century. Bishop Usher, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's the man who wrote the Irish Articles, and the Irish Articles are foundational to most of the English Protestant confessions. He calculated a precise number of years from the beginning to his own day. But there are other men like Augustine who may, I'm going to say this, may have opened the door to an older earth. I say may because I'm no expert on Augustine. He has three commentaries on Genesis. I tried to work through them, and I'm not entirely certain I understand his whole position and all it entails. But many contemporary scientists and theologians have pressed for an older earth. I have friends, good, I want you to hear this, good, godly scholars who are friends 
who hold to something like a day-age theory or a framework hypothesis, and they are quite open to an old earth. Here's the point I'm trying to make. It's sort of like inquiring minds want to know, how old is the earth? As I was talking about that with the staff, Mikey replied, really? Are people really interested in that? I mean, I don't even like math. Why do I want to mix it up with my Bible study? (laughs) Yes, people have long been interested in those questions. Some Christian thinkers in the past took this question even further. I don't know if you guys know this. They even argued about which month and day was the first day. You might be surprised. They argued over whether it was April 18th or October 23rd. You can read that in Bishop Usher. You can read that in Turretin, both of whom argued for October 23rd. So we're coming up on whatever anniversary of the first day of creation here shortly. My point is that folks have wrestled with these questions for millennia, and I want you to hear me clearly. I will likely not provide you the definitive answer this morning. Please don't misunderstand me. There is an answer that is true, and it does matter. It does matter. What I'm saying is that I'm not certain that I will resolve an old debate of this magnitude in one sermon. So I anticipate questions, though. And they're going to come to me. They came to me last week already. They're going to come to me again. But Chad, haven't you heard Jason Lyle? You guys know who Jason Lyle is? He's a young earth astronomer, quite bright. Haven't you heard him? He's brilliant. Don't you think he's proven a young earth? Or I've also heard this one. Chad, haven't you heard of Hugh Ross? He's brilliant. Don't you think he proved an old earth? I've heard that from people in our congregation, both of those questions. I've been to conferences and read books by young earth scientists. I've been to conferences and read books by old earth scientists. And so here's what I want you to hear. When it comes to this kind of topic, I have really, with regard to the science of it, I have no way of making a worthwhile assessment. Last week I told you, I informed you, I wish I had paid more attention in science. But even if I had, I would not be at the level of expertise to know if the young earth guys are giving you junk science or the old earth guys are giving you junk science. And frankly, neither do most pastors I know have that expertise. Here's what I can do. I am a student of God's word, and I think I can tell you reliably what the biblical text is saying. And I plan to do that today. I also plan to show you what it seems the point of the days of the creation account really is. What is the point of it? And here's a clue. I do not think Moses is answering a question about the age of the earth. I don't think that's what he's after. I think that the age of the earth debate misses the main thrust of what Moses is doing in the text. I'm not saying it's an unimportant question. Truth is always important to be gotten after. What I'm saying is it's not the point of this text. So I hope to accomplish two goals this morning by answering two questions. One, how long is a creation day? I think the text does tell us that. And two, Why did God create all things in the space of six days? Those are the two questions I want to answer this morning. And really these two questions belong together. So let's start with the first question. How long is a creation day? Look at Genesis 1-5 again. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, to answer the question of the length of a creation day, I have to answer two more questions provoked by this text. What are they? Why does he start with evening? Why does Moses say there was evening and there was morning the first day? That's not generally how we start. 
We generally say, today there's morning and there's evening. He starts with evening and morning. Why start there? And then how is the word day being used in this text? So let's take the first question. Why start with the evening? Why start with evening? And there was evening and there was morning. This formula closes the account of each day's activity. And there was evening and there was morning. Look at Genesis 1.8. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Look at Genesis 1.13. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Look at Genesis 1.19. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Look at Genesis 1.23. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. In our creation account, there is darkness followed by light. So I want you to pay attention to that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the Hebrew merism. In other words, it's a way of accounting for all things. The heaven and the earth. He created it all. Those are the two poles, if you will. He created all things. And now he starts to detail that creation, that it was created in a state of immaturity, a state of like an embryonic state. It's created that way, and he's going to begin to fill out how that creation then comes to full maturity and is finished at the end of the sixth day or completed. And so he says the earth was without form. It was uninhabitable and void. It was uninhabited. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Notice what prevailed was darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here is the Spirit of God there to beautify it. To breathe, if you will, light into darkness. And form or inhabitableness into uninhabitableness. And beauty or adornment filling into that which is unadorned. And so he's there beginning to do that. And we see that first act And God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. In other words, there was darkness. And then there was light. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The order is darkness, evening, and light, morning. In the creation account, darkness was before the dawn of light, just as evening was before the morning. In this sense, evening and morning also function as a merism for a whole day. The two poles of the day, evening and morning, darkness and light, dusk and dawn. Evening refers roughly to the 12 hours of the night, and morning refers roughly to the 12 hours of the day, the two parts, if you will, of the day. So evening comes first because darkness is likely encompassed in the 12 hours of the night of the first day. There was darkness over the face of the water. And light is created beginning the morning of that first day. Dawn broke forth in creation. The Jewish concept of a day begins at dusk. Did you know that? Not dawn. This creation account is likely the genesis of that pardon the pun, is the beginning of that view. We can see this for both Israel's common days 
and Israel's sacred days. Their days are marked by evening and morning. A day begins at evening and carries through the next morning until the next day begins on the next evening. That's why the Sabbath day began at evening. If you remember when Jesus is crucified, they took him down before dusk, before the Sabbath day would begin. It begins at evening, and it ends at evening. Listen to Leviticus 23.32. Just listen to this, Leviticus 23.32. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, ninth day, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. So evening begins a day, and if you will, evening ends a day. So a day is accompanied by evening and morning, and the next day starts on the next evening. This drives us to an implication that we're going to really address in our second question. How is day, the word day, being used here? How's the word day being used here? I think you're already getting a feel for how it's being used. The best understanding of this text is that a day, I'm going to make an assertion, that a day is an ordinary day of evening and morning akin to something like a 24-hour day. There aren't that many, I didn't have to count it up, actual 24-hour days exactly, but you guys get it, something like a 24-hour day. Let me provide you with three brief reasons why, or maybe 2.5 reasons why. The Hebrew use of the Vav consecutive. What in the world is that? A Vav consecutive, I want to show you what it looks like in English. In Hebrew, we know how this is used, but look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Notice that phrase, and God said. Look at verse 4, and God saw. Look at the next phrase in verse 4, and God separated or divided. That's a device of Hebrew prose that points to these acts being sequential. So you have a list of Vav consecutives telling you that this text is sequential. These acts are sequential. Now, admittedly, these acts being sequential in the narrative does not require that they are chronologically sequential in history. It doesn't require that. Yet this does provide us one clue as to how we're to read this text. We're to read it as a sequential account. Second, the use of the Hebrew word yom or day. If you didn't know the Hebrew word for day, now you do in this text, yom. It seems clearly in this context and in Exodus 20 that yom is being used as an ordinary day with evening and morning. Look at Genesis 2, 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In this sequentially ordered account, God is taking his creation from embryonic form to adult form, from incomplete to complete, Genesis 2-1, or finished. And Moses wants us to read this sequence as a sequence of God's work in creation, a sequence that is analogous to our own work week. We work six days, And then we rest on the seventh day, or worship. In other words, it's a pattern for our own lives. Six days of working, one day of rest and worship. Look at Exodus chapter 20, this account of the Ten Commandments. As Israel comes on her exodus out of Egypt and comes to Mount Sinai to hear from the Lord. And we read this covenant document of the Mosaic Covenant that stretches from 
Exodus 19 through Exodus 24. And we read this in the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives these Ten Commandments. I have redeemed you. Now live this way. Keep my commands. And he gives these ten words. And if you go down to verse 8, we read this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Work six days and rest and worship on the seventh day. For this is the pattern written into the creation with regard to how God created all things. This points us to a use that indicates an ordinary day. That's what Moses is appealing to. Why do you work six days and rest on the Sabbath? Because God did. Follow that pattern in creation. God didn't rest from all his works. He rested from his work of creation. He continues to provide. He continues to redeem. But he rested on his work from creation. So what are you to do in an analogous way? Work six days, rest on the seventh. Now it's true that yom, this word, can be used as a reference to something more than an ordinary day. Anybody who tells you yom is always used for an ordinary day is just not telling you the truth. Sometimes it's used for something more than an ordinary day. Look at Genesis 2-4. It comes up right as we move into Genesis 2 and probably a passage we'll get to in January. But look at Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the day. That's something akin to that time period or age in which he made it. That season in which he made the heavens and the earth. Not in the days. Look at Genesis 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. Now the ESV isn't particularly helpful here because the Hebrew is in the day. In the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Arguably... That is not just referring to the sixth day, but to the entire creation account. Further, it's also true that in Psalm 90, verse 4, we're told that a yom, a day, is like a thousand years. Or we're told in Isaiah 43, in fact, you should look at that passage. I want to look at the use of the Hebrew word yom or day there. Isaiah 43 and verse 13. Notice what it says. Also, henceforth, I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Now, here's what I want you to know. The ESV in its translation here is entirely unhelpful. And henceforth, I am he. Okay. The New King James Version, the King James Version is more helpful. Before the day was. Before the day was. I am he. Before the day was. There's yom. I am he. Henceforth is how they're translating yom. Day. Really, before the day was, I am he, or I think actually the NASB gets right at the meaning of it the best when they say, even from eternity, I am he. In other words, this word day is now being used for eternity, something prior to the first day. That's an eternal day, if you will. 
That's a really odd way of speaking. You understand that. However, the danger with word studies, I'm just going to point this out to you because we love to do word studies. The danger with word studies is just because words can be used in a variety of ways does not mean you can import whichever meaning suits your view into a particular text. I like the eternal day in Isaiah 43. Therefore, days are figurative. And so in Genesis 1, it just goes right along with the science I already believe. And there we go. Off we go. You don't get to do that. Frankly, Jace, this is the 2.5. Jace sent me down a rabbit hole. I felt like I was Alice in Jace's hands going down the rabbit hole, looking for every use of the word yom with a cardinal number, like first, second, third, or an ordinal number, one, two, or three, in the Hebrew text. I even bought a module for my Hebrew software so I could try to search it out more closely every single use because Jace pointed out to me that he can't really find any uses of yom day with a cardinal number that mean anything other than an ordinary day. So I wanted to search out, is that true with ordinal numbers as well? And of the 222 uses I looked at, there were 12 that were maybe leaners. They were all in the prophetic literature. The rest were overwhelmingly ordinary days. I was really hard-pressed to find any that were not indicating an ordinary day. That's a rabbit hole I ran down. But it's not without any import. Because you have here Yom used with a cardinal number. Second, third, fourth, etc. But while that may provide some direction, it doesn't seal the answer to the question. Rather, we must consider context above all. As G.K. Beale has said, context is king, queen, prime minister, and president. You get the point. Context. And I would argue that contextually, these days in Genesis 1 are best understood as ordinary days of evening and morning in a sequence moving from the first day to the seventh day. God created in the space of six ordinary days. Then he rested from his work on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Now this likely begs a question from you. Then are you a young earth guy? And here's my answer. Probably. Now I carry the inferences from the text forward. And that seems to me to be to answer the questions the best in my mind. But please hear my argument. I am arguing this text necessitates ordinary sequential days of evening and morning analogous to our own experience of days. What I'm not arguing is that this text necessitates a young earth. I'm not arguing it necessitates it, though that would be my position if pressed. Like if I had a gun held to my head and said, young earth or old earth, which shall it be? I would just go with young earth and wait for the click. I just don't think, though, that Moses is answering that question. So why was it done this way? And it leads to our second major question. Why did God create in the space of six days? Why not create everything in one day? Augustine was challenged by the Manichees over this issue. Is your God so weak that he needs six days to create everything? And Augustine went on to argue he created all in one day. It's a little bit creative. That opens the door potentially to an old earth because his notion of a day isn't an ordinary 24-hour day, but there are other texts where he seems to argue for a young earth, and so that's where I'm not quite sure how to understand him. Again, any guy who writes three commentaries on Genesis, which one is the one, right? And how is the context of each one? But Augustine's point is right. It's not that it required six days for God to create everything. God is powerful enough to create everything in an instant, everything, Why does God carry it out over six days then? Well, God created this way to accommodate us, to teach us. It's instructional. God did not need six days to create. 
God did not even need in any way, shape, or form as much time as it takes me to preach about his creation to create. God could have spoken everything into being as it was in one word in one day, yet he created in six days. Why? Well, it's important that we begin with the premise that God is not giving us a kind of head fake. He's not just sort of pretending to create in six days for our benefit. He really does create in six days for our benefit. This really is a creation in the space of six days. I think Calvin addressed this well when he said this, For it is too violent a cavil to contend that Moses distributes the work that God perfected at once into six days for the mere purpose of conveying instruction. Not for the mere purpose of conveying instruction. Let us rather conclude that God himself took the space of six days for the purpose of accommodating his works to the capacity of men. God distributed the creation of the world into successive portions that he might fix our attention and compel us as if he had laid his hand upon us to pause and to reflect. You see, as we walk through the days of creation, we'll see the Lord develop the creation from an embryonic state to a full-grown adult creation, and he's wanting us to pause and reflect. We will see his goodness, his wisdom, and his power as he forms and fills, as he takes what is incomplete and completes it. He could have made all things at once as they are now, but he spread it over six days to accommodate us. But why accommodate us this way? In other words, what's he getting at? He is accommodating us by giving us the pattern of our lives of work and worship in the creation account. What do I mean? God was laying the foundation for weekly Sabbath worship, for dwelling in his presence as his people for the period of one day per week. God created and ordered things like this for our good, to accommodate our minds, to drive us to the seventh day, to the Sabbath. These days correspond to the Hebrew week of work and worship. Look at Exodus 31. You'll see that there. Exodus 31, we're going to look at verse 12 and following. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit we learn in Luke. This seven-day pattern tells us more about grounding our sacred worship in the order of creation itself than it does about the age of the earth. I'm not saying it says nothing about the age of the earth. I'm saying it tells us more about grounding our sacred worship in the order of creation itself. It tells us our weeks are meant to point us to their pinnacle. The one day in seven set apart as holy, a day sanctified for the worship of our triune God. This 
is what we were meant for. Yes, we are the pinnacle of creation, but day six is not the greatest day in the creation account. Day seven crowns the creation account as we, as God's image bearers, enter his worship. God created you to work in this material universe, and that work is good, and the universe is good, but that's not our ultimate purpose. Our ultimate purpose is to fellowship with God. Our ultimate purpose is to be in his holy presence. This means that time really matters in the creation account. And I'll spend more time on the notion of time as we move along in the creation account, but time really matters in the creation account. It matters that there are, in fact, seven ordinary days that account for an ordinary week because it's driving us to the pattern that time in God's presence, time in God's presence is our ultimate purpose and joy. Every day of this week is driving us through the calendar to the seventh day, to the Sabbath. Please don't miss that emphasis. All of this was for our good and God's glory, and it is our good to be near to God. The Lord's Day, taking one and seven, is a token, a token of offering ourselves to God as we dwell in his presence together. The morning and evening sacrifices of Israel were the same. Each day was bracketed. By presenting themselves to the Lord for his good pleasure. That's why it's a whole burnt offering. Because the whole burnt offering is consumed. And when it's consumed, it's, it's, if you will, turned to smoke. And it rises or ascends to the Lord. And so they offer this whole burnt offering morning and evening. Marking off that the whole of their lives is, are to be sanctified to the Lord. And so then they ascend to his presence. And the whole of our week is to be bracketed by work six days offering yourselves as a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering, morning and evening, and on the seventh day, gather with God's people, and God speaks to us, and we respond to him, and we dwell in his presence, and we're sanctified. What we learn is not focused upon the dating of the age of the earth, nor detailing every aspect of how the creation came to be. What we learn is that God created all of this for us, that we might dwell in his presence forever. The whole of creation understands its purpose. You know that? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. The angels also understood the point of creation, often better than we do. Look at Job 38 and verse 1. The Lord is answering Job out of the whirlwind, and he's going to speak. You might think, you've been pointing us to Job a lot lately. That's also because I'm teaching that in deeper, and so (laughs) I'm in it a lot. Who is this, the Lord speaking to Job? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Now note this, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, that's the angels, shouted for joy. What we're told by Job, as the Lord speaks through him, is that the angels, having been created, watch the forming and filling that we see in the creation account, and as it happens, they shout for joy. They worship God as they see him work, as they see him speak, and the creation comes to be. They can't do anything but worship. That's the purpose of creation, to drive us to worship the creator. Our purpose is to, if you will, magnify or glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of the creation week, to provide the pattern of work six days, 
rest and worship the seventh day. That's the purpose of evening and morning, so that we would offer ourselves holy to God at the dusk and at the dawn of every day. We're to offer ourselves evening and morning to recognize that our whole day, every day, belongs to the Lord because we're his. In this way, we want to be like John Calvin. Do you know what his motto was, John Calvin? His motto was, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Morning and evening, we ought to be, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. My whole life is yours because I'm yours. But there was a time in which we failed to live this way. We did not look to the Lord. Our life was not lived for his glory. So God sent a savior, a savior who would redeem us and in whom is a new creation. A redeemer who would save us from our sins and make all things new. Because rather than worshiping the God of creation, we rebelled against him. And we worshiped the creature, the created things instead. At the beginning of that new creation, we also see the angels sing. Look at Luke chapter 2, at the birth of our Lord. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Christ has been born and wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. And we're told this in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Isn't it fascinating? The angels sing at the beginning of the old creation and the angels sing at the beginning of the new creation. See the pattern? God works. The angels worship. God's word speaks into being the old creation. The angels worship. God's word becomes incarnate, beginning a new creation, and the angels worship. Just as God spoke light be and there was light, so God spoke the revelatory light into our hearts when he saved us. I just want you to hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of our God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, 3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? The same God who spoke, light be, and it was. That same God when you were blinded by your sin, in the darkness of your rebellion, spoke into your hearts and showed you the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, and you were saved. You were saved. As those who believe and are saved, our lives are then given for his glory. We respond with a life of worship, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. We offer ourselves to him evening 
and mourning. And when we come to the weekly Lord's Day worship service to hear from and respond to him, we do that again, morning and evening. We want to hear from the Lord, and we want to respond to him in thanksgiving. I don't have time to walk through the whole worship service with you today. I wrote a whole thing about it. I'll do it later. But I want you to understand why we keep updating the worship service, if you will, because we recognize there's a dialogue that's happening in Scripture. God speaks, and we reply. We don't just sit there like a bump on a pickle. God speaks, and we reply. We worship corporately, together. We sing, we confess, we profess our faith. We worship together. With that said, let me pray, and we will turn to worshiping him in song. Father, we are thankful that you are our creator who created all things in the space of six days to teach us, to accommodate us, to build into the pattern of your creation, the pattern for our lives, that evening and morning we offer ourselves to you, that on the seventh day, now in the new creation, the Lord's day, we gather to dwell in your presence together, to hear from your son as he speaks, and to rejoice in him by responding. Cause us to lift up our hearts and our minds, our voices to you. May we sing of you, our God, the God of the old creation, and of you, our God, the God of the new creation, our Redeemer, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.